I spend a huge amount of time with my managers, making sure that they are constantly questioning the work that their teams are doing. And so the thing that we talk about all the time is, okay, like we had hypotheses around what would work. Are those working, right? How are we measuring the return? How are we measuring the success? How are we changing the plans based upon what we're seeing? How are we iterating and how are we communicating that? And how are we getting alignment with sales? Those are not things that you can use in a technology, right? That is about the strategy. Once you have the strategy, then you use the technology and the tools to make sure that we all stay aligned and to make sure that we're communicating and to make sure that we're troubleshooting. But you can't just use the technology without the strategy, without the communication. Hey, it's the Data Driven Marketer. I'm Adam. I'm Mark. And I'm Jessica. Welcome back for another Hang in the Data Basement. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to our guest this week, Jessica Gilmartin, who's the head of revenue marketing at Asana. We've been super excited about this one since our producer reached out. Um, we're Asana users. Big fans. And I've said for a long time that one of my secret weapons in terms of moving through my own media production career has been being close enough to engineers to see what they use to manage workload and applying it to production and then seeming wildly efficient compared to the pre-existing system. I'm still doing it <laughs> on an ongoing basis <laughs> as part of my job. So there's a broader, uh, fun conversation to have about project management tools and all that kind of stuff. But first, we'll throw to you for an intro on uh, your background and how you ended up at Asana and, and in revenue marketing. Perfect. Thanks so much. Really excited to be here. So I have definitely a non-traditional background. So I started my career as an investment banker, which is why I'm excited to be talking about data because I love data. Um, and I love marketing because it is the combination of creativity and, and data. And I um, started, started a chain of yogurt stores, which you don't hear a, a lot, uh, and then was able to sell that and then stumbled my way into tech marketing and was at uh, a startup that was bought by Google and then was there for a bit and then really loved the startup world. So did you know, CMO, COO, sales at various startups. And at my last startup, we could not launch a campaign to save our lives. And my team was super frustrated. And so my head of demand, Jen, said, we're going to put Asana in. I'd never heard of it before. And we put it in and it completely changed our lives. And I just fell in love with the product and the company. And then uh, someone reached out from Asana and said, hey, we've got this new role that we're building, which is really helping us to think about Asana as an enterprise-ready company and really helping to build out our enterprise marketing strategy. And it was super exciting. And so I joined two and a half years ago and um, it's been absolutely incredible. That's awesome. Like I said, we're excited to talk about the same thing you just described in terms of experiencing working with the tool and then kind of going, okay, this can work, but then you have an interesting challenge when you hit enterprise. It's a challenge that we're facing uh, in internally in our day-to-day. -day. <laughs> so first, at the direction of people more creative than I, that's to say the producer said, you should move that question earlier. We used to end with this, but we're trying it up front now. What's your favorite ad campaign that you can think of? Or like, one that delights you. For, sometimes the way we phrase this is, what's the first ad campaign you can remember? But that also sort of dates people. So <laughs> we don't always want to answer that question. And I have ADHD. So mine changes week to week. So we're excited to hear what you have to say. 
Yes, I'm going to actually stick to the theme of data-driven uh, marketing. And I'll, this will be a little self-serving, but, but I will share. And, and I know you haven't seen this because uh, you know, it, was, it was a limited time campaign, but Asana is actually really well-known for beautiful creative within the B2B space. But we, we launched a campaign a few months ago called Work Worries. And it was all about taming your work worries. And this was the first campaign that we ran that was based upon extensive customer research. And so, uh, and actually it was our most successful campaign ever. When you look at our KPIs and you look at what it did for, um, to, to lift all of our advertising, this was by far the most successful. And so I really appreciated that we were marrying great creative and great data at, this, at the same time. And I think as a, as a marketer, it's actually pretty easy to do great creative, but it's actually pretty hard to do great creative that actually drives business impact. So I'm, I'm a really big fan of, of any ad that does that. Um, and, I, and I'll also share, uh, I think one of the, the, the greatest examples of that was in the Super Bowl with, uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it was the, the cryptocurrency company where they just flashed a QR code for 30 seconds. Oh yeah, the Coinbase thing. Coinbase, and it was the most brilliant ad and they showed, it almost like crashed for servers and it showed this like unbelievable return. And um, and I love ads like that, that are just totally different and that somehow somebody has figured out a clever way to beat the system. I couldn't have said it better. They beat the system and you can validate it in real time, right? There's nothing better. Well, I've been pitching weird QR code campaigns for like 10 years. Finally, people are like, yeah, QR codes. My 11-year-old son would love to have a conversation with you about QR codes. He's a little entrepreneur and he has a, a baking business um, where I, I do all the baking. He gets all the money. It's pretty sweet for him. But he, <laughs> he actually got PayPal to send him um, big foam boards and posters that he put up with QR codes. And he's like, he loves QR codes. That's in lieu of an allowance, I assume? No, he gets both. He's a, he's in addition, okay. <laughs> So I thought before we jump into the, kind of the tech weeds and talking about work and stuff, we should do some definitions. So you're the head of revenue marketing. What's your definition on revenue marketing? This is one of those things where if you work for a bunch of companies, you start to learn, you got to get in it first and go, okay, what does this mean that you do here? Yeah. <laughs> what is it you say you do here? Especially with marketing, everyone does 17 different things and it depends on your use case. But in your case... Yeah, so I um, I would say it's the next generation of demand generation, right? So if you think about traditional demand generation and lead generation, it has been very focused on leads. And I think this new world that we are moving into, it has to be the intersection between marketing and sales. So when I think about revenue marketing, I, I sort of very deliberately chose that name for my team because I wanted my team to be focused on how are we driving revenue for the business? How are we making sure that every lead we're creating turns into an opportunity and turns into revenue for the sales team. And so that's really, for me, the definition of revenue marketing, which is that intersection between marketing and sales and all of the incredibly hard work that it takes from a top of the funnel perspective to a systems perspective, to a data perspective, to a sales enablement perspective, to turn top of the funnel into revenue. Yeah, it's kind of, if I had to take a swing at it, it's marketing plus sales. Like it's integrating the funnel in a way that that it's instead of the two fighting, that's everybody has to work together here. It's all part of pushing this deal along. That's exactly right. And then I actually was a, was a former salesperson. I built sales teams. Uh, and so I, I deeply understand the sales process in a way that I think most marketers don't. And so I have a really, really strong empathy for sales and understanding of what it is like to have to build pipeline without any marketing. And so I, I never want to be in a situation where marketing and sales are competing. 
I want to be in a situation where marketing and sales are always working together, always aligned on our incentives, and that we're always supportive of each other because ultimately we should all be focused on the same thing, which is making the company successful. I think you're speaking to uh, an extant concern a lot of teams have because it, you're seeing so many. We just went through an acquisition. We were part of a, a 25 person startup that just got purchased by a, a multinational corporation and, and kind of figuring out what processes to continue, what processes to hand off, what processes to retire, you know, developing new relationships and understanding where gaps that you had before could be filled. For us, it's, it's interesting moving from top of funnel marketing to, to sales. You have that weird sort of SDR, BDR space. How do you go about ensuring alignment potentially between you know, third-party contractors, um, your SDRs, and, and ensuring consistency between marketing and sales? It's one of the absolute hardest things to do. <laughs> um, having done pretty much every single thing you can do in marketing, the marketing sales alignment is by far the hardest. Well, that's a good segue to the next definition, which is to back up one step from even Asana and talk about the phenomenon of project management software. Like that's the thing that for sure I've realized over the years of using it and adopting it with different teams. There's a really effective way to collaborate, sometimes even asynchronously, which is needed even more in like a global enterprise context that open source software projects figured out. Um, I've worked inside of a bunch of those, so I've been really deep inside of super async. Everything's in the pro- everything's in the you know the ticketing system, effectively moving through stuff like that, and it creates this split where you have people that have used project management software and can never go back, mm-hmm. and the people that still don't don't get it. From your view at Asana, you know, sort of what what is the project management or work management revolution happening here? I guess. Yeah. And, and you mentioned two important terms. One is project management and one is work management. And I think like, like most technologies, it, it started with a single purpose and has really expanded. Right? So when we think about project management, it is exactly what you said, which is how do I get clarity? How do I understand who is doing what by when? And so when I talked about you know, my previous company, we're a CMO, and we could not launch a campaign to save our lives. right? And all of a sudden, when, you, when we implemented a project management tool, we implemented Asana, we were able to then say, okay, this person is doing this by this date and they're not doing this. And this, these other teams are impacted and they will know when their work needs to be done because it's all written down and we can triage and we can prioritize and we can assign. And that is project management and that is very game-changing uh, to basically be able to run campaigns. And that has historically been what, what project management has been focused on. Over the past few years, uh, we really pioneered this idea of work management. And work management is this idea that everybody should have clarity in an organization around the work that they need to do and how that ladders up to goals. So one of the things that Asana launched last year uh, that has been truly revolutionary and has like completely changed our relationship with our customers is goals, right? So if you think about, um, you, you may have OKRs, you may have goals, um, you may have, you know, whatever is your, your three bullet points that you're focused on for the year, however you think about it, it may be on a sticky note now. But, but all of that information is now in, in Asana, right? All of the goals for the company, for the team, individuals, they're all there. And then all the work that they're doing to achieve their goals is all there as well. And so work management is really just a system of record for every single thing that you as an organization are doing. And it, it allows everybody to have clarity. It allows all of you to see who is doing what, why you're doing it, what the status is, what the results have been, and why it matters. 
And that's like a fundamentally different thing than I'm just using it to solve one individual problem. Does that make sense? It does. And I think it's, it's actually a great segue into another uh, topic we were curious about, which is productivity. So with that definition in mind of project management and work management, could you share your perspective on rethinking productivity in general? Uh, more specifically, do you think team success should be measured in goals accomplished rather than tasks completed? So Asana has done a ton of research over the past couple of years. And what we've seen during the pandemic is that people are working longer hours and they're super burnt out. And so as we think about how do we create motivated workers that will stay with our companies and be excited and be productive over the long term, the answer is not to give them more work. And the answer is not to reward people just signing tasks and people just completing tasks. Because ultimately, does that actually matter, right? Does that ladder up to what is important to the company? And so the most important thing to do is make sure that your team members understand what are the priorities of the company? What are their goals? What are they going to be measured on? What is the impact that they are creating in the, in the organization? And reward that, reward impact, reward um, how, they, how their work met ladders up to the company goals. And it doesn't matter if people, the, the number of hours that people spend or the number of tasks that they do. What matters is the impact that they're making. And at one point in there, you said motivated and inspired, which reminded me of an Asana feature that I've always wanted to talk about. So here we go. Asana has the best uh, like celebrations, like the narwhal and stuff that fly across the screen. Yep. Like I reference that in product pitches all the time where I'm just like, and then you need a bit of enchantment. I call enchantment. it enchantment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, um, one of the fun things that I, I do is, is during a presentation, I will always have a unicorn flying across the screen, right? Like when, when I want to demonstrate something really great, something really well done. We, we actually use our celebration creatures pretty much everywhere. Um, and, and I agree with you. There is nothing more delightful than completing a task and all of a sudden getting a unicorn flying across your screen. You're like, yeah, I did do a great job. You're right. So I do think that that's, that, that's an interesting part of the conversation because you're talking about an interface, right? Which is now getting into a place where you live for a good chunk of your work life keeping things organized, doing all this stuff, working toward the goals. Like you said, it's easy. F- once you get in front of software like that, it's easy to say, okay, now I can track the tasks. So we track all the tasks. Then if the system, like you're maybe not ch- chasing the right thing, if the tasks aren't aligned yeah. with the right aspect of how we quantify productivity or, or capacity or whatever we're trying to track with all the tasks. And then yeah, goals. Goals is the thing that lives above it. In terms of like, okay, if you're going to have this sort of decentralized teams working on these things, what are they laddering up to? Curious just on thoughts where software, software piece fits, right? Like how, how much of this has to do with the fact that, okay, now we're inside of software and we need to remind everyone inside of that system that's not just about the task list, which was the important part of the place to start. Let's start with, can we quantify our tasks? Yes. And then past that, it's like, now we need to quantify goals so that everybody can understand why we're doing all the tasks, the larger why. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and technology doesn't solve everything, right? I mean, that, that's, why, that's why leaders are there. That's why we have teams. That's why we have managers. Because it is not just about putting something into a static task list, list and completing it. Uh, and so that is where it's incumbent upon the leader to be constantly reaffirming and re-explaining what are our goals? What is our mission? 
Why are we doing this? How have things changed? Because things change, especially in software, they change all the time, right? So the thing, even the, the, the plans you made a month ago may not make sense anymore. And so my job as a leader is to constantly communicate what is the context of why things are being done? What am I hearing that my team isn't? How will that help them to think about their work? And, you know, and I spend a huge amount of time with my managers making sure that they are constantly questioning the work that their teams are doing. And so the thing that we talk about all the time is, okay, like we, we had hypotheses around what would work. Are those working, right? How are we measuring the return? How are we measuring the success? How are we changing the plans based upon what we're seeing? How are we iterating and how are we communicating that? And how are we getting alignment with sales? Those are not things that you can use in a technology, right? That is about the strategy. Once you have the strategy, then you use the technology and the tools to make sure that we all stay aligned and to make sure that we're communicating and to make sure that we're troubleshooting. But you can't just use the technology without the strategy, without the communication. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk some about you know, deploying this stuff, right? You're in a funny position of being inside of a company that I assume you use Asana for project management <laughs> at Asana. Um, so so I, have, I have a funny story. When I joined, we, we have a two-day, we call Asana Palooza. And we just, it's like a very intense onboarding to Asana. And our head of people came in and she said, first thing that I need to tell you is that we use Asana like crazy people. And that is, that to me was one of the greatest introductions to a company ever. And is very, very true. So um, I know people, it's hard to believe, but I've never sent an internal email in my two and a half years at Asana. Um, and we use Asana for 99% of our communication and we use Slack for the other 1%. So we are, we are heavy users, to put it mildly. So then I think what we're curious to talk about is what it's like using it in a marketing context. Like Mark mentioned, I think, you know, like our team, I, my smaller team is pretty familiar with project management stuff, but D&B more broadly is still working on rolling it out. So there's a continuous sort of onboarding process. And, you know, that, that involves sitting down and having those, you know, sort of strategic like ops questions. How do we organize this into project management? Curious sort of, you know, trends you see in your own org and stuff like that. Yeah, I'll share with you in particular how, how I think about it. So I have a team spread across eight countries. And so I have a lot of complexity around time zones and communication and languages. Uh, and it would literally be impossible for me to do my communication synchronously, right? Everything that I do is asynchronous communication. And so I have to think very carefully about how I use that communication to make sure people understand what's happening. And that if you're in Tokyo or London or San Francisco, you have access to the same information. And I have to say that's one of the absolute hardest things that you can do in a large global organization. And so I think like number one is really thinking about uh, what is the method of communication? How do you want to share information and what information can you share and how are people best able to process that? One thing that I do for my team that they love is uh, every week on every Friday, I, uh, it's the last thing I do before I close, close the screen down and go over to my son's baseball practice is I send a weekly update of all the things that happened to me that week and all the things that they should know about. And it really helps them gain context in a way that they would never, right? Like they don't get to speak to the executives. They don't get to speak to the board. Um, they don't have uh, interactions with people that I do. And so it just enables them to have context uh, around what they should be caring about and what they should be thinking about. 
So that's like the number one thing that I think is really important. Um, and then we, as an organization, do a lot of that. So we do a lot of status updates. So as you think about it, pretty much everything is a project. So everything that we do, any launch that we have, any campaign that we have, um, any sales enablement process that we have, it, it's a project. And we're pretty maniacal about people sending status updates every week around what's going on. And they even can say things like, hey, this is at risk. And you're like, okay, this is at risk. Yikes. Like, what do we do about it? Um, and it just allows everybody to have the same, I, I call it sort of democratizing information, right? Everybody in the company has access to the same information, not just the five people that were invited to a status meeting. And so I think like those are the kinds of things where it's really about information sharing and it's about taking accountability and giving accountability that really changes the way that we work versus you send an email and you send another email and then you send another email and then you hope people respond and then you follow up and you're like, did you actually get this? Did you see this? Are you doing it? Um, oh, oops, did I forget to copy Mark on the email? Does he know that the timelines changed? Like, I know we all are familiar with that. Like, that is like a very common marketing thing. It drives everybody crazy. And now I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, information coming from potentially multiple sources or lack of information from sources you wish you were getting information from. I know as a team member, I always appreciate updates from, from leadership um, in that way. So on behalf of your teams, thank you. <laughs> So I'm curious, just from sort of a practical standpoint, just like how it fits into your day, how it fits into the the days of, you know, your team members and stuff. Like, what do you think the move is with broad, with, with software like Asana in terms of, like, I have to block time. Like I block an hour and I go and make sure that I've, you know, taken care of everything inside of any, any project I'm associated with or watching or anything like that. I also know people that just kind of, it's open all the time and they just dip in when they need to. And it's, you know, I'm curious how you see that at different levels of sort of responsibility and, and you know, stuff like that as the, the org grows and the projects get more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it depends a lot on, as you said, where you are in the organization, right? So I, I'm, my, most of the time that I spend in Asana is reading updates and responding, right? So my job is to unblock people and my job is to approve. So I'll get, you know, a brief that comes in of, hey, we, we want to launch this campaign. This is the information. Do you approve it? So I want to make sure that I am being really responsive and so that I can unblock, move things forward. I'm not creating a ton of content in Asana. I'm a consumer of it. Uh, but obviously for people that are spending you know, or actually building campaigns or launching campaigns or actually doing work, uh, which is, hasn't been me for a while, but who are, you know, the ones that are creating campaigns, interfacing with our agencies, um, you know, they're probably in it much more because their job is to create the content um, and their job is to sort of facilitate the approvals and facilitate the sharing of information and making sure people are being held accountable and assigning tasks. Uh, so I think that that's like pretty fundamentally different depending on the level of the organization. And, you know, you, you might have a, senior executive, you know, sort of a, a C-level, a CEO that maybe never goes into Asana except when there are updates, status updates. They want to sort of see this, the, the, the updates on what's going on, on on specific projects or on goal completion. So I think it, it really depends a lot upon where you are and, and how much you're creating work versus consuming it and approving it. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between the, the sort of consumers and the, you know, it's content. Right. I mean, you're talking about a content feed that is that you yeah. have people where, 
hey, my job is to be there and mostly consume the stuff, occasionally engage, but I'm not going to be in the weeds of, of the projects and stuff like that. It's important, I think, to think about that distinction in terms of overload. Like one of the things you bump into when people are adopting this kind of stuff is suddenly you're on a thousand things and you're not sure which one's which. And now you have to figure out how to, how to load. How to prioritize. <laughs> yeah. yeah, prioritize. <laughs> well, like yeah, and, and I think for, for someone um, in a relatively senior position, right, people want to include me a lot for visibility. And so it, it is, you, you do, there is an art to be able to consume lots of information. And I think also one of the, one of the really important things, my job as a leader also is to motivate people and reward and recognize people, right? And so a really big part of what I do is making sure that people's great work is appreciated and that I am connecting the dots and I'm making sure that, for example, if an amazing campaign just happens, that my manager is on there, our COO, and she can see it. And, and I think that those kind of small things really make a big difference. People generally work their hardest and do their best. And it's a very small thing to make sure that they are. It's a very, very small thing to do, but a very impactful thing to do to make sure that their work is visible and appreciated. So you mentioned earlier, one of the things that we've talked about in other contexts already, just the async work. When you start to grow your community of team members based on this sort of philosophy of like, okay, it's not as important that everybody shows up in a meeting because there's a central source of truth for what's going on and we can and the chatter about it and all of that stuff. I've, I've seen this again over in open source projects, like even some weird crypto ones where it's like, I work with people I only know as a screen name and really good code. And it's like, hey, I'll keep working with them. But, and it works because of this async component, but it really it like it increases the diversity or the potential diversity of your team and, and opens up you know, that inclusivity space. And yeah, thoughts on that? I think I think it's a really cool topic in the space and fits kind of with the, you know, Asana's whole vibe as well. Yeah, I think there's there's so many ways to think about diversity and inclusivity. You know, I'll I'll share the one that is most meaningful for me, which is having such a global team and a team that is split across so many different time zones. And, and as I as I said, it's just impossible to get everybody together in person. And so I think there's there's a lot of things that we have to be really thoughtful about. Right. And to, to make everybody feel like they are connected to the team and it's the language that they use. So, you know, using language that everybody can understand, not just Americans. And it's even simple things like when you do an all hands or when you set up meetings, alternating between different time zones so everybody can join live. And we, we've even had um, trainers come in that have taught the whole company about how to speak to different cultures and how to think about different cultures and engage with them and how, you know, somebody from a different country might communicate and might think differently. And so it just builds that level of empathy. And I think, you know, otherwise you're just creating a situation where you almost have multiple different cultures within one team. And I, I, I think that's really dangerous. You want to align everybody on one mission and one purpose that feels really relevant to everybody. And you want to make sure to create an environment where everybody feels equal. We just had that with a campaign where the slogan that's been killing it for us in market in the US caused the international team to go, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, we just found out the boundaries of that meme culturally. <laughs> and it is dope. Oh, it is dope. Yeah. Did not transfer. Yeah. It was like, yep, we thought that might happen, but it's okay. The U.S. is a pretty big market. 
Yeah, that's like one of the um, that's one of the hardest things as a marketer when you are running global campaigns is that balance between you know what makes sense for each market versus not being able to over engineer. Right? There's no way that we could create a campaign that makes sense for 15 different markets. And if you tried, you'd end up diluting it so much that it wouldn't really have a lot of impact. And so the the question is, how do you walk that fine line? between having it be relevant in your core markets and in different regions, but also be really relevant. Like data is dope is a great, you know, that's a great expression. It's powerful in the US. Um, and so maybe then how do you make that trade off and say, yeah, maybe we'll just do this in the US. Does it work so great in Japan? Does it make sense for us to change the whole strategy or does it make sense for have us to continue this in the US and do something completely different for Japan? These are all like really hard trade-offs to make. Definitely. Uh, one thing we wanted to get uh, your take on is kind of pulling back from, from in, in the weeds of specific team management and just looking at the broader marketing and MarTech space. Or what is your perspective on marketing innovation in the coming year? And what trends would you see or, or do you anticipate dominating the MarTech or what we call RevTech space in the next five years? Yeah, well, I'll share what I hope happens. (laughs) I'm not sure if it will happen. Uh, So I think it's been so interesting to see the rise of product-led growth over the past couple of years. You know, I started my career in marketing, you know, 10 years ago, and there was really no such thing as product-led growth. It was all this very traditional outbound sales marketing. Then all these amazing companies came around that did product-led growth. And it's such a brilliant idea. It is like a completely different marketing and sales motion. Like it it is completely different from traditional sales and marketing. Um, So that was kind of like the next wave of product-led growth. And now this new wave is actually combining product-led growth and sales-led growth. That's kind of where Asana is right now. And that's where uh, I talk to a lot of other marketers. And that is very clearly where the world for, I'd say, 60 to 70% of companies is is now. And and my guess is at some point, most companies are going to move to that. Having a hybrid product-led growth, sales-led growth company is basically like having to do marketing and sales twice. The, the systems are different and the motions are different and the data is different and the skill sets are different. And, um, and it's actually like very, very hard. Like it's much harder than doing one versus the other. And so um, I would love to see a world where some brilliant person figures out how to make that whole handoff between PLG and SLG really seamless and basically a converging of the tools that people use for PLG and the tools that people use for SLG so that it really just becomes one new tech stack and motion that the marketers and sales can work towards. So that's, that's my dream. We'll see. That does sound like the, the RevOps dream. <laughs> <laughs> the utopia we seek. <laughs> I was curious. In terms of definition, I don't, you know, people are probably Googling as they listen, product-led growth versus sales-led growth. Mm-hmm. Our audience, we run the gamut from you know, specialist managers, media planners, all the way up to the C-suite. You know? So I think that, that perspective is, is super applicable no matter where you fall you know, in the org. Yeah, to be sure, at D&B, we're going the other direction. So we're at a company that had hit scale and is largely sales driven and then we're you know trying to introduce the digital marketing perspective that comes up and mm-hmm. sort of the measurability and the metrics and the different way of thinking about stuff right at the seam of those two things that I think is 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 kind of that that shift to 
okay, we put us we put an upgrade button in the product and people are clicking on it. <laughs> it's a much more concrete piece of input than than you know. What 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 I love about this world and what I love about where we're all moving to is, you know, in the past, like one or two people in an organization would buy software and then push it down to everybody. Right. And whether the experience was great for the customer or not, they would have to use it. They, They have no choice. And what I love about this world that we're moving to is that it is all about the customer and it's all about those moments of delight, like you talked about the narwhal and the unicorn and the, and the satisfaction of using a really great product. And, you know, now, now we're consumers are much more picky and much more demanding and they should be. And so, you know, we're, we have now a situation where you can't just have a couple of people that are forcing an organization of thousands of people to use their product. You have to earn that right. Like we, Asana has to earn our right every day to be used within an organization. And we do that by having individual users love us and champion us. And that's how it should be, right? Like people that use the product should be the ones that determine whether the product gets used. And, and I think like, listen, it's just a democratization of, of technology. And I think that's fantastic. So to wrap this one up, and then we'll ask where people can find you, all that kind of stuff. But first, I want to talk about yogurt for a minute. <laughs> How the leap from investment banking, brand management to yogurt company founder? I mean, it's, it's the classic career path. And uh, yeah, so, so I, um, I was an investment banker for four years and was doing very well, but realized that I, I, there was a creative side to me that I, I wasn't getting to experience. I went to business school and I discovered marketing there and ended up working at Dell in Austin. Um, my husband got an amazing job opportunity out in Silicon Valley. So we moved here and I called up a good friend of mine from business school and said, I'm moving out here. And she said, Hey, do you want to start a business? And I was like, yes, I would love to start a business having absolutely no idea how hard it would be to start a business. (laughs) And uh, fortunately I was very naive about it. Um, And so we started thinking about the things that we love and are passionate about. I think every single person on the planet should only do the work that they are passionate about, right? They should come to work every day feeling like they love and they're going to be the biggest advocates in the world for things that they're doing. And so we started throwing around a lot of ideas. And one of the things that we're both really passionate about is healthy food and and food in general, um, but particularly health conscious food. And we felt this was in 2006. And um, gosh, there was like, you know, you, you could, you could have a delicious you know, treat, right? You could have ice cream, you could have brownies, you could have cookies, cupcakes, and you feel really bad about yourself. <laughs> or you could have, you know, something really health conscious and be really depressed that you just ate that. And we thought there's got to be a way to combine something that is really healthy, but really delicious. And so we hit, and I had lived in Europe and I had experienced the amazingness of European yogurt. And so I thought we should, we should build on that and we should bring European style yogurt to California. And so um, we did it completely differently. Every single person said we would fail. The only person that didn't was my husband. I still appreciate that to this day. Uh, but we put our life savings into it. We, we became licensed pasteurizers. We figured out how to make our own yogurt. We built our own pasteurizing plant, which as far as I know, we're still the only place in the, in the world that actually like created and sold yogurt on site, you know, in the same place. And, um, and it was amazing. And it was a huge success because it was so different and so unique. And I learned a really important lesson from that, which is 
do something that you love and do it really, really well. And don't listen to other people because if you listen to other people, you will do everything that everybody else has done and you'll never do something unique. I love that. Which is also a little bit the counter narrative to to uh, see what see what's in the data, which we do try to point out here, which is say it's all still in a bit of a squishy space of sometimes you got to make some stuff up and see if it works. I will say though, you test. Um, no, it, it was. I have to say it was incredibly data driven because we actually did a huge amount of research first. So it, it is always about using data and, and intuition. So we did an enormous amount of, of, of research on. What were the trends around yogurt? Like, what were the trends around healthy, fast, casual food? Um, what would we expect from revenues, from margins? We walked every single street, I'm not kidding you, in the Bay Area from, and if you know the Bay Area, from Oakland down to San Jose and to the East Bay to, Ber- to Berkeley to Marin. And we mapped out where were the schools, where were the yoga studios, where were the gyms, um, where did people, you know, if we, you know, we understood our target market, where do they congregate? And then we ended up, you know, and, and from a, you know, day part. So where would we see morning traffic, noon, evening, weekends, um, and aggregated all of those. So we, we used a lot of data to figure out, like, how would we maximize our success? And then we used our intuition and our gut around how do we make sure that that is going to feel really different and unique. So um, there is a way to marry those two. And I'm a big fan of the, of the marrying of the two. I think you just made a great ad for this podcast episode is kind of what we're all chasing is validating these crazy assumptions with data or doing better testing backed by a foundation of data. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, so this, this was great. Jessica, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Uh, Where can people find you or, or Sana or sort of wherever you want to send people? Yeah. So, um, well, most importantly, go to Asana.com. So I, I suggest sending them there. We are all over social. So, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and then you can find me on LinkedIn. So happy to connect with folks. Great. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, This has been the Data Driven Marketer. I'm Adam. I'm Mark. I'm Jessica. Thanks so much. Take it easy, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Data Driven Marketer. Our show is produced by Jessica Jacobson and Dan Salsius. This episode was edited by Steve Kosh. The Data Driven Marketer is sponsored by NetWise, a Dun & Bradstreet company. Any views or opinions expressed in this episode do not represent the views or opinions of NetWise or Dun & Bradstreet. <laughs>